Shalom, John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native on this Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. While this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage, and in some cases, start conversations. We're shooting for a different kind of enlightenment. We kind of break the rules here for Native Radio. We don't do prayers, we don't do Buffalo speeches, and we don't do spirituality shows. We take, take a tough look at history, oppression, and survival. We talk about culture, the arts, politics, and identity. And we may step on a few toes along the way. But our real goal here is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We will take on the false narratives and provide critical thinking to all that's heaped upon us. And we do it all right here live from the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. So let's talk native. But first, let me remind you that our audio streams live on our website, which is www.letstalknative.com. We stream live video of the show on Facebook via Facebook Live on our Facebook group pages and share it across a bunch of other Facebook facebook group pages as well we take the audio and we put it up on soundcloud after the show which goes out as a podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms we take the video and we put it up on our youtube channel which is let's talk native tv i encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and subscribe to our youtube channel on our youtube channel we do short form videos as well as uh we we put all of our uh our shows on there as well um I am the show's host and producer. I'm joined here in studio by Jake Proud, who is managing our audio and our video. All right, let's get into it. Look, we are past more than a week into June of 2020. Eh, we're not quite halfway through the year, but a lot's happened in, 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 in this first half of the year. So the question I have is, have we learned any lessons here? Have we learned any lessons? Look, there's a lot that people have experienced. I mean, there's a lot that we've experienced. But do we take away something from it? Do we gain from the the hardship? Do we gain from something we learned about ourselves through all this stuff? And let me not beat around the bush. We've got COVID-19. We've got this virus that is um, uh, once in a lifetime kind of uh, kind of thing i mean uh we don't know what the total numbers are going to look like we don't even know what the what the current numbers look like we have numbers that we can reference off of a couple of websites which i i often cite i mean i as a matter of fact uh, the the world according to confirmed by test cases has crossed the 7.3 million mark for number of cases the united states has crossed the 2 million cases mark um, but again, this is all. Th- these aren't all the cases. These are only the ones that have been confirmed by test. New York State, four hundred thousand, all by near, all by itself, four hundred thousand. That's more than many countries. Uh, in fact, there's only two countries that have more than that. Or, I'm sorry, three countries: the United States, <laughs> uh, uh, Russia, and uh, and Brazil. So this is, I mean, this has been life changing. We did all the stay at home order issues we've watched um capitalism fail in a big way uh so you know I, the the question remains and, and i'll get back into the specifics here after after a while what have we learned from it what do we take away from this global pandemic that we should carry with us and carry forward with us so that we not just are more prepared for the next pandemic but what did this pandemic teach us about what we can rely on so that, I want to talk about that. Of course, the other big news, which isn't you know the full year. Uh, well, I'll take it back. When we talk about uh, COP killing POC, I'm talking about cops killing people of color. Uh, death by cop, as it's otherwise known. Um, it is the big news today. Uh, we still have 
protests and riots and uh, uh, clashes between you know people or de- uh, demanding justice, people who are protesting police violence and violent police attacking them, you know, as a response. So that's what we've been seeing. But you know, George Floyd may have been killed by the Minneapolis police a little over a week ago, but this has been going on year after year after year after year, and of course. The, when I get into the lessons learned here, I want to talk about where do we fit in that? I mean, we, we know statistically Native people are, are killed at a higher rate by cops than any other group of people. The only age demographics that we aren't the highest as far as a rate goes, as a percentage of our population, is the 16 to 22 age group. And there, black men, young black men, uh, pass us in the number, in, in death by cop. So we know that statistically we are on the high end of the scale, but our numbers are small. We live in remote areas, many of us. I mean, look, many people are killed in cities too. But again, we're a much smaller population, so we don't get the fanfare. We don't have, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, TV personalities, uh, you know, throwing their attention our way. We don't have, you know, uh, Floyd, you know, uh, Money Mayweather, buying us gold caskets when we die. We, we don't have that stuff. And, and I'm not begrudging that stuff. I'm just saying that we exist at a whole different level. We are um, the least significant in terms of dollar, or in terms of you know, numbers, um, in terms of our affluence, in terms of our location, least significant population in the United States. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not calling us U.S. citizens. That's for a, each individual native to decide. So there's a... We are marginalized even when we lead in a category and that category makes news, we still become marginalized. So I want to talk about what we learn from this and, and, and how do we how do we be heard? How do we be seen? Look, we've been trying to beat the drum over missing and murdered indigenous women, which is related directly to death by cop because many cops are involved in some of these um, missing and murdered indigenous women, whether they are involved directly as um, the perps or whether they're involved in their own negligence or, you know, uh, low priority associated with, with, with native women. I mean, this is, this is the experience that we have. So, what I want to do is I want to spend time on this show talking about the lessons learned, hoping that as people listen to the show or watch the show, they'll reflect. I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to tell every. I'm going to tell everybody what they should have learned. Uh, you know, I'm going to point out some obvious things. I think, but I think we. This is all about self-reflection. We all have to look at ourselves, and we have to look at what this these experiences have done to us. Just this year, you know, and, and again, the death by cop thing's been going on for a long time. Um, it's there's a certain irony in that it was a murder in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota has a tremendous legacy. I've talked about it before. Minnesota is, uh, you know, Mankato, Minnesota is where the Dakota 38 were executed, the largest mass execution in the history of the United States. The execution order signed by Abraham Lincoln. The execution took place the day after Christmas, a week before Lincoln stands before the crowds touting his Emancipation Proclamation. We, so again, the actions of people 
um, as significant an event as a mass execution was, Lincoln is never known for that. I mean, if it weren't for people like me and, and, and a few others who bring this up all the time, most people wouldn't even know it. I mean, it, it, you know, a friend of mine just said it, that she's a non-native woman and she says she finds it exhausting trying to educate white people. She says, I can't even imagine what it must be for, like for, for people of color, for marginalized people trying to explain this over and over and over again to, to people who are absolutely oblivious. Well, part of the frustration is it isn't just white people that we're trying to explain this to. Like I said, Black Lives Matter, they kind of, they're not, you know, showing much light our way, you know, and, and look, I support Black Lives Matter. I do. But you, with the exception of Colin Kaepernick and, and even Muhammad Ali, there are not a whole lot of black personalities who are, are quick to cite um, the, the, the native, the racism that native people experience. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a black thing. Well, it's not a black thing. You know, white supremacy is white supremacy. It isn't just black inferiority. White supremacy means that they think they're, they're superior to everybody. And, and of course, and I just had to, I had to mention this on Facebook on a friend's page. To be clear, white supremacy is a lie. White supremacy doesn't really exist. And because it doesn't exist, white privilege has to be built into the system to favor white people. Because there is no genetic superiority. White people aren't better than anybody else. And, you know, and when people talk about uh, um, racial superiority or inferiority, that's scientifically false, too, and everybody knows it. It's that, and that's why racism has to be built into the system to favor white people. Because white people want their privilege. Look, if they were genetically superior, they wouldn't need white privilege. If they were racially superior, they wouldn't need racism built into their police system. They wouldn't need racism built into capitalism. They wouldn't need racism built into education, into, into the Justice Department, into the Legislative Department, into the Executive Department. They wouldn't need it built into all that stuff. See, they have to have racism to keep themselves in power. Because they are not they are not genetically, racially, or, or any other way superior. You know, and, and I get frustrated when I, when I hear Native people say, well, you know, white people learn a lot about this, this, and this, and that's how they, they, they stay in power is because they are continuing to, to educate themselves and, and figure out the way to, to, to pe keep people down. I said, but the system is, you know, look, it is crumbling, there's no question about that that white people are kind of losing their mojo a little bit which makes them more desperate it turns white it goes from white supremacy uh their belief in it starts to get shattered so they gotta fight for their white privilege and as they lose that they get into white fragility so this is where it all comes in but let me let me before i get back and i'll get back to to the racism to the death by cop but let me spend a little bit of time talking about COVID 19 so what do we learn from this? You know, one thing that is clear is, again, racism is a big factor. Native people were the, among the last people to have broad availability of testing. The, the group of people that had the highest percentage of infection 
are that have been you know distinguished or, or you know uh, separated out has are the Navajo. Navajo have a higher rate, higher rate than New York. I mean, New York has got more infections than you know, and a higher rate than, than many countries do. But Navajo has a higher rate. In fact, Navajo territory has more infected cases, and again, confirmed by tests, than twelve of the United States. Twelve. I mean, they have more. So Navajo territory, one native territory, albeit a big one, and you know, one of the larger ones in terms of population too. But they still don't have as many people in the state as as the whole state of New Hampshire. And if they they have more than that, they have more cases than New Hampshire does. They have more cases than you know, South Dakota does. So Navajo territory has a tremendously high rate of uh, rate of infection. So how did that happen? Well, <laughs> church again. I mean, and church played a role. I mean, in spite of the history of biological warfare used against Native people intentionally, we also have um, just the whole neglect and um, willful neglect that just allowed our people to die. And the church has played a role. At, the church has played a role in disease blankets. Lord Jeffrey Amherst uh, of Great Britain, of the UK, uh, suggested that, it, that that they be handed out. They used disease and the Bible hand in hand. They said, "Well, you know, it's because you're pagan. It's because you're a sinner. That's why you're sick. If you pray, and you know, you know, they they used the illness to, to promote the religion. So there's always a connection between disease and religion. Uh, residential schools, residential schools were run by churches, and there tuberculosis and, and other diseases were allowed to run rampant through schools. Why? Because they didn't care if, if the kids died. In fact, it, it wasn't even just a question of the kids dying because of neglect. The, the kids were dying of abuse at the hands of the church. But, but again, when we look at disease, what you would think history would have taught us more. But so how does, how does Navajo get the, their, this, this massive rash uh, of, uh, of infections, well, started with a church gathering. In fact, they're calling these kinds of church, these church events, whether it's choirs or these church gatherings, they're, they're calling super spreader events. They're, they're calling group worship the basis for super spreading of the disease. And there you have it. That's how that's how Navajo gets to start. Of course, you also have poverty, lack of water, lack of running water. You have food deserts. You've got medicine deserts. You've got all kinds of problems existing, not just in Navajo territory, but but others. But so we know that as a native people, and and Navajo is a is a good example of what many native territories have faced. But and you know, and it's getting a little bit of media attention. And I, and I say a little bit. I mean, there's there, it's it's been covered but it's it's funny every time i hear there a conversation about why um uh, black people are dying at a higher rate why native people are um you know navajo territory is, is is experiencing this and they and they try to do a rationale they try to create um you know some sort of rationale for why this happened and they never will come right out and say well it's racism and it is there's no question that, that the systemic racism that exists in the United States, which have created pow- policies that create poverty amongst people of color, amongst ma- uh, marginalized people. And there's no question about that. 
we but we as native people we've also even as we've tried to to carve out economies and we've tried to participate in their capitalist system we saw that that fail it didn't just fail them it failed us so i asked again i asked the question what what are the lessons learned what do we what did covid-19 teach us about capitalism well it should have taught everybody but as as native people who and I, everybody knows that I advocate free and independent existence. Now, I'm not saying that we are free, and I'm not saying that we're independent. I'm saying that we have the right to be. But in order to have the right, you have to have the responsibility to make that happen. And we're so dependent on the, on the capitalist system. So as it fails, do we, do we walk away from this experience knowing something, learning something, educated? Look, even our gaming enterprises... I mean, you look around Indian country, and from a private sector standpoint, uh, speaking as uh, Haudenosaunee, um, gas and cigarettes have been the big private sector, you know, boon for us when it comes to economic development commerce. We've got smoke shops, we've got gas stations, and that's what the private sector, and of course, nation enterprises have gotten involved in in this as well. Um, But as a you know, as a means of public finance, gaming has been the big issue. Well, you know what? Gaming got their ass kicked over COVID nineteen. I mean, Seneca Nation, I mean, you know, all the, all native gaming, they shut down. They they shut right down. They actually cut off their spigot of, of of public finance. Now they're gonna try to open back up, and they're gonna stage their opening. They're gonna limit the number of people that come in. I don't know, I don't know how they're going to make money. I mean, and, and I say this because I look at what non-native gaming, a state-licensed casino uh, closest to the Seneca Nation uh, uh, called the Lago, they haven't made enough money before COVID-19. They were making enough money to pay their debt service. So if they or the Seneca Nation or the Oneidas or anybody else have to open up and only allow 30% capacity... In terms of you know people coming in, so they're going to cut the revenue by seventy percent, and yet they're still going to have to hire and have everything functional. I'm not saying their expenses are going to be a hundred percent of what they were, but we damn sure know the revenue isn't going to be. So I don't know. I don't know how they do. So what do we learn from this? I mean, what do we, what does it teach us about dependency on gaming? What does it teach us about dependency on a single source of revenue for public for public finance? I mean, look, we're not a t- we don't tax, and, and my, most Native uh, territories don't. And it's not because we can't. It's just not something that is conducive to... We don't... It's not fair. And, and it's not a... Uh, that, the idea of taking away somebody's wealth or, or their, their, their money, <laughs> their currency, that they get paid for the, when they sell their labor... Just doesn't sound doesn't sound right. I mean, even the idea of of taxing a purchase. So if you're going to buy something, or you when you buy something, you got to pay some of it to the state or the federal government. I mean, that doesn't make sense to us. So that's not the way we create public finance. We we do it different. But if we end up having a tail wagging the dog scenario, which is exactly what we had when we went all in with gaming, because. Not only did, our, did we grow out our gaming, we, we grew out our, our public finance. We, we grew out our, our, um, our budgets. We started spending more money. Look, I know a lot of the money goes back to the people through, through annuities or whatever else, which also got impacted by, uh, by all of this. So what does it teach us? 
Yeah, and I, I look, and I, I'm not giving the answers here. I'm asking the questions because we should come out of this pandemic with a a little more of a sense of what is vulnerable. Look, I've talked about it for for years. I've talked on the show about the fact that capitalism can fail and will fail. This hasn't even killed the the economy. No, it impacted it. Where the economy gets killed is when all of the 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 global commerce and the global economy that is that is built solely on on debt when that debt gets called in that's when it all collapses it hasn't even collapsed yet and it still may i mean look there's a piper to be paid here you know so if you look if you only got through this three months because you got trump checks in the mail and that's what got you individually through this wow what are you going to do if that wasn't there? I mean, look, I know not everybody needed them and they got them anyway. I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, some people, some people actually made out during this, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic because between unemployment and supplemental unemployment and, you know, stimulus checks, actually some people got, had more money because of this thing. They had no place to spend it <laughs> except for ordering stuff online, I guess. But, that's not a a, a, a a collapsed economy. That hasn't happened yet, but at least we got a little insight on what could what could happen. We found out, you know, what it's like to not be able to pay somebody to cut your hair or to prepare food for you and, and sit down and and put it in front of you, tie a napkin around your neck for you. No, we we, we learned you that that went away. Yeah, you still order pizza and wings, I guess, if you, if you want to go pick it up. But so, I mean, again, we at some point have to look seriously and look, it's easy to make light of of some of the more comical things that we've grown accustomed to, you know, getting our nails done and our hair done and that kind of stuff. But there was some genuine hardship that got caused by this and, and not everybody got their Trump checks. Not everybody got their stimulus checks and, and collected, you know, unemployment benefits. There are some people who really, really struggled didn't know where the next meal was coming from or how they were going to get it. Then when they showed up at the store, they found out that stuff was sold out. So we got at least hints of what happens when economic chaos happens. And that's caused by the global pandemic. That's caused by COVID-19. We haven't even discussed what happens if you, if you, if you got sick and the impact, because most people, again, still most people didn't get COVID-19. But we all know somebody who did. We all know somebody who died. I mean, almost everybody I know knows somebody who died. Now, granted, some people say, yeah, but they were old and they had other underlying conditions and they probably, you know, were, were going to die within the next five years. But still, doesn't mean they didn't lose five years. I mean, I don't want to lose five years. I mean, I want to be able to have every day that's, you know, that's available to me. I don't want, I don't want to give any of them up. So, I, you know, again, I ask the question, what do we take from this? What do we learn? What do we learn about our relationship um, about with, with state and federal government? I mean, ironically, when the Seneca Nation shut down, they did it independently from New York State, but they... They kind of did it parallel. And during this period of time, as the Seneca Nation ran, essentially have, has run out of money, 
<laughs> you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, they're, they're not broke, but they to go almost three months without their main source of public finance, while they have a half a billion dollars sitting in, a, in, in various bank accounts or sitting, you know, non-liquid dollars that they've set aside in case they have to pay the state. What does it teach you? What, what does this say about what the Seneca Nation should be doing with New York State or, or the, the Interior Department? Uh, you know, I said from the, the first thing, when this thing first started impacting the Seneca Nation, some of their, their representatives said, well, what do you want to ask of the federal government? I said, well, how about doing your effing job? How about the Interior Department finally doing what it should be doing as it relates to all of this, this uh, extortion happening by states against Native people? Extorting revenue sharing out of them you know, against the risk of saying, well, we're not going to renew a compact, which means you're going to have to get shut down. Interior Department won't even answer that freaking question, let alone answer the question about whether the uh, revenue sharing is legal or not under the under the the explicit terms of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. We know that that we're being extorted for this money. It, it couldn't be clear. I mean, look, you 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 literally have the state saying, no, you have to pay us. That's not sharing. If you have a state saying you have to pay me, that's not sharing. <laughs> that's that's demanding. That's imposing a fee. So what did this global pandemic, what did this economic shutdown, what is the what, when that means of public finance disappear? What is it? What should be the lesson learned here? And look, there are lessons that all of us can learn as individuals. And then there's lessons that um, the various native administrations and the the you know the elected officials, the the condoled, whatever, whatever system, traditional or, or elected, whatever you've got. What is their responsibility? Because I'll tell you, there hasn't been a lot of good information coming from uh, from leadership, as far as I'm concerned. Look, we get updates, you know, tell us what happened the week before, but in terms of a plan going forward, and in terms of you know, instilling some confidence or some hope in people saying, look, we understand what we're going through here. And, I, you know, this isn't just about giving people a pat on the back. They're saying, this is what, this is why we have to uh, um, affect change going forward. We, because not only can this happen again, we don't even know if COVID-19 will ever be gone, but there are other things that can happen to us. And, and, and again, as I get into the second half of the show and I start talking about the abuse that uh, that can come at the hands of, of cops, and we've had plenty of it over the years, plenty of it. Um, we should know how aggressive police can be, and I'm going to tell a little bit, take a little stroll down memory lane uh, in the second half of the show to talk about the abuse that cops have uh, inflicted upon Native people, not just the deaths, but the but but the violence. And that's what's played out over the last week and a half now. Even my co-host on my show in, in New York got knocked on her ass. She, she said on last Thursday show, she said, well, yeah, we're, we're doing an event at the, um, uh, in, in the Bronx. And there the cops contained them. They, they, they invaded them from both sides, didn't drive them out. They actually herded them up and, then, and started abusing people. Regan wasn't even in that mix. She was on the outskirts and somebody still, well, a cop ran up to her blindside, knocked her on her ass, um, 
pepper sprayed her, and a bunch of people got bludgeoned. I mean, this is what happens when cops get enraged because they aren't there to pursue peace and to, to serve and protect. They are there, and it's funny, you listen to the politicians saying, well, they're, they're establishing or they're maintaining order. No, they're, in, they're order, law and order, no. They are asserting control, dominance. That's what President Trump said. You need to dominate people. And that's what the police have done. All right, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But then I want to move into, the, in, into what's happened with the police violence and what we should be taking away from that as well. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. We'll be right back. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Um, like I said, it's it's June 9th. Uh, we're more than a week into the sixth month of the of the year. And, you know, I'm asking the question, you know, what have we learned? What have we learned in light of COVID-19? What have we learned in light of massive amounts of police violence? Not just the death by cops that we've been watching t- time after time after time. Native people, black people, uh, Hispanic people. We've, we've seen it play out over and over and over again. But even when people step up and say, look, this is a problem. We need, we need to step up and bring attention to it. And as they show up on the streets, they get, <laughs> they get police attacking them, clubbing them, knocking them down, you know, um, smashing their head on the concrete, pepper spraying, uh, rubber bullets, uh, tear gas canisters, uh, concussion grenades, batons, shields, cars. I mean, this is, I mean, the amount of violence is incredible. So again, got to ask the question, you know, what are the lessons learned here? What are the lessons learned? So, I mean, for us, this is nothing new. Uh, It's funny because I, there's a, the, the county comptroller in Buffalo, or I don't know if it's Erie County or the city of Buffalo, his name is Stefan Mahailu. And before he got all right wing, you know, balls to the wall, Trump supporter, you know, uh, you know, right white is right, you know, I mean, all, all that stuff. Um, he, was a, he was a TV reporter in, in Syracuse. He was actually in Syracuse. When the Onondaga chiefs called the state police in to beat the crap out of a bunch of native people protesting the deal that the chiefs were trying to make. But he actually was the reporter that when the police came and started clubbing people and knocking people, knocking baby strollers over, women, arresting a bunch of people, um, came after Mahailu and his cameraman. I mean, I actually talked to him. We did a, one of the, the two sides programs I was on with uh, Christy Mazurik and Stephen Mahailu on, uh, on Channel 2 here in Buffalo. I asked him if he remembered. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he talked about how crazy it was to see that level of violence coming from the police. Now he's a right winger. So now the police can do no wrong. Somebody ought to remind him of that. Because this idea of police attacking Native people or people of color, it's been going on for a long time. And, and in fact, when those state police lined up on uh, Interstate 81 to come after all those people who were peacefully gathered on on, on the territory right off the off of Interstate 81. It, they could hear the state police say, let's go kick some Indian ass. Let's go kick some ass. I mean, they were hyped. They were all hyped up. I mean, they, they were they were ready to attack. That's what they that's what they were. They got all pumped up to do it. 
And that's exactly what they did. And look, we saw, you know, as we fought the police here in, um, uh, in Western New York and various places over, over taxes and stuff like that, we've, been, we've seen this all the time. Of course, what the, what the folks in Standing Rock experienced, what was strange is the amount of violence that, that the protesters, and it's Native and non-Native that were at, out at Standing Rock, the amount of violence that they experienced now is so common every city in the United States and, and, and cities in other countries as well saw these violent police actions. I mean, even, even here in Buffalo. <laughs> Buffalo where, you know, not a real significant city in the overall scheme of things, but they made national news. How did they make national news? They knocked a 75-year-old man off his feet, smashed his head on the ground. He has hit his head so hard that blood poured out of his ear. Not He didn't just cut his head. He had hemorrhaging inside that blood poured out of his ear. And, and the cops just kind of walked by. It didn't, didn't even stop to, to give me. Nobody, nobody tried to help him. And then you get the black mayor of Buffalo calling him an agitator, saying, well, we, you know, we were told that he, 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 um, he was responsible for some of the, uh, um, the, the, the more riotous behavior days before. And there's no evidence of that. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, gets on. Now, this isn't even a native guy. This isn't even a person of color. This isn't a, I mean, Buffalo's known for their Italian community. This is an Italian guy, a Catholic an Italian guy. I mean, I mean, you, you couldn't be more middle of the road and more, you know, I don't know, assimilated into into the Buffalo culture than than Martin Gugino. But he was he did he was socially conscious conscious and and he and he he was an activist. But he wasn't, you know, violent. But Donald Trump says, oh yeah, he was a member of Antifa. He was he was he was causing riots and he was. I mean, he, he took. Byron Brown's agitator comment and then embellished it to the point that, that he's literally called this old man like you know, some some violent <laughs> I mean I mean it was it's absurd. But that's Buffalo. Even little Buffalo made the national news in terms of police violence. And and two of those two of those Buffalo cops have um you know, not only did they get suspended without pay, but now they've been charged. <laughs> and to show just how broad-based and how, you know, the, the argument against the whole one bad, you know, just a few bad apples. Yeah, you know, it was terrible what that cop did or that cop. Well, what about all the other cops who stood by and watched it happen? And that's, if it wasn't even just that. In the case of Buffalo, you had the entire squad that was the emergency response team quit that task. They resigned from that, that aspect of being a police officer. They resigned their emergency response team uh, status in support of, of these two cops. When they were arraigned, hundreds of cops and fire department, you know, firemen, all rallied to, you know, and, and cheered them on as, as they came out to, to address the public. I mean, this is that, it's not such a thin blue line. It's a pretty thick blue line. Cops do not police police. I mean, you know what I'm saying? They, they don't stop a police officer from committing a crime. They, in fact, they'll lie for them. And, and the system is built to allow them to lie, uh, lie for each other. You know, the, they can get together and corroborate their stories and, and all that other stuff. No, no other defendant can do that. The first thing they do when, when uh, you know, a, a normal uh, citizen gets uh, arrested is they separate them. They don't want them to talk to each other. They want to try to get them alone so they can make sure that they're um, 
any discrepancy in the story. But not police officers. They get all the time in the world to, to make sure that they all say the exact same freaking thing. And that's what we experienced when, when uh, a bunch of Native people uh, charged the state police for, for their civil rights violation out of, out of Syracuse, the one that Stephen Mahilu witnessed. Um, all those cops got together. And, and of course... They ended up paying off a bunch of people. They, they they offered a settlement, and it was it was kind of pitiful. And, and a bunch of people took the settlement money. Uh, others didn't. But we saw that violence firsthand. We you know we, we we saw it as we as we engaged police over the years over taxes. But in this situation, this was an attack by the state police, called in by the by the Anadog chiefs, I might add. But that's a whole another that's a whole another issue. That's because even if the even if the chiefs did call them in. That still doesn't give them the right to beat the hell out of people. And not a single person that was arrested or beaten that day had a charge. They, they dropped all the charges against them. So they, they knew that it was all bullshit. So this is what we experienced, right? So now watching what's happened, not just with the, with the death of, of George Floyd, which is really... Look, I get it. They, they videotaped... and. and and I don't want to downplay the fact that this guy was killed by uh, my Minneapolis police. I don't, I don't want to get, downplay that. But Tamir Rice was killed by, you know, Cleveland police. You know, um, Eric Garner was, was killed by uh, New York police. I mean, we see it over and over and over again. We see missing and murdered indigenous women where the police are involved in, in, the, in the rape and murder of some of our women. And, you know, we see it over and over again. So I don't know exactly why George Floyd was the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was. And, you know, maybe, may, you know, frankly, maybe there's a correlation with COVID-19 and the fact that people have been, you know, cooped up. And, uh, and, and maybe part of it is that there was this slim belief that, that a crisis like COVID-19 would bring people together and would unify people. But it never stops. It doesn't stop racism. In, in fact, racism started, you know, it was getting, becoming more and more exposed with, with the numbers and how people of color, Native people, Black people, were, were suffering at a much by, greater rate than, than white people. We, we started seeing it, in, and again, with some of these, this police abuse, we have the, 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 the woman in, in Central Park, threat, a white woman threatening a black man, you know, uh, and, and her threat was, I'm going to call the cops and say that you have threatened my life. Because she knows that she can weaponize his race against him. He wasn't doing anything to her. He told her to leash her dog. And she was willing to create a scenario that she knew in her mind could actually kill that guy. She knew that if she said a black man is threatening my life, that the cops could show up there and kill him. She knew that was a possibility. I mean, what, was it a, you know, a fully drawn-out plan to kill him? No, but she knew how to weaponize that, even during COVID-19. We have Ahmaud Arbery, you know, killed by you know, a father and son team and, you know, with, with connections to the police in, you know, in, in, uh, in Georgia. And then you have, you know, and you, and you have this. You, you have um, uh, George Floyd that is not just killed with a gunshot, is not just threatened, but a, but a slow, premeditated... I mean, this guy kneeled on his neck for almost nine minutes, three of which 
the guy was unconscious. Three of those nine minutes, he was he was he, he was already not breathing, and he still remained on his neck. And two cops were there to assist him, and the third cop was there to to make sure nobody else interfered, that nobody would protect George Floyd. Nobody. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? I mean, I look, I. I didn't know about it in time, but the you know uh, a group had did a, a small demonstration here at Seneca Territory. They walked from you know the, their uh, lacrosse arena to um, to the roundabout down on five and twenty. But you know what? Why? I mean, to, I mean, look, I, look, I'm I'm glad that a statement is made. But we need to address the violence that we've withstood not only in the past with with state police, but if this thing gets ugly. Between the Seneca Nation and the state of New York over gaming and gaming revenue, and push comes to shove, and, and Andrew Cuomo decides that he's going to try to shut the Seneca Nation down, we better lay some groundwork that says, look, we're not going to put up with this bullshit from state police. We've done it before. We've experienced that violence from you. We know when you've been willing to spend $30 million uh, you know, a month to, to oppress us, and we're not going to let you do it again. So this is the kind of stuff that, that I think is, we've, we've got to think through this stuff. Look, uh, the violence that, that we have seen at the hands of police throughout our history, I mean, let's be honest here, what, what the whole function of police was in the first place. The reason that the Second Amendment was, was um, added to the Bill of Rights was to make sure that slave patrols and stolen land from Native people could be protected. This isn't a stretch, folks. I mean, look it up. You, you can do your own research. Why, why was, this wasn't just about militia. This is about slave patrols. This is about f- forming organizations that could protect the property of white people. This is a, a historical thing. This goes back hundreds of years here. And the violence that Native people and Black people have experienced from law enforcement and the complete lack of any type of service or protection from them. I mean, you, look, you can cite Rosewood and, and uh, you know, uh, um, Tulsa riots and, you know, there's a, there's a whole, I mean, there's a dozen race riots that took place between, you know, the, at the at the turn of the 20th century, you know, between 1900 and 1920, in mid 1920s, there were dozens of race riots in, in all major cities. But you know what? Native people have been experiencing this kind of violence not just at the hands of police, but in the hands of the military. I mean, the expression that you hear talking heads sometimes say, "Well, that was such and such here, George really went off the reservation on that one, didn't he, Chuck?" Yeah. That whole off-the-reservation thing, that's this, this notion that a Native person off the reservation was considered a bad Indian, and the ones who stayed confined and didn't venture off of the prescribed, for all intents and purpose, uh, purposes, you know, um, concentration camp, imprisonment, um, they were the good Indians. The, they were the docile, they were the, the behaved Indians, and the wild Indians were the ones who went off the reservation. So, when they use that expression, gone off the reservation as a uh, as a derogatory expression, it gets its that's it gets it comes from history. The the history of assessing the non compliant native people as the evildoers. 
as the, the, the ones that you could legally hunt down and kill. So not only did you have police, not only did you have the army, but you also had bounty hunters. You had people who could make a living killing Indians. That's the history. You know, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, the idea that the straw that breaks the camel's back comes from Minnesota. Ooh, what a surprise there. The good people of Minnesota wanted a massive hanging. They Look, there was the potential for 300 native people, over 300 native people to be executed. And Why? Because that's what they've done. They, they did this kangaroo court and they went through and they tried over 300 Dakota native people, Dakotas, in, in a couple of weeks. Tried over 300 within a, a short period of time. Convicted them all and sentenced all of them to die. Abraham Lincoln, who still got a, you know, trying not to look like, you know, a jerk to the rest of the world, says, I can't sign an execution order for 300. You know, can't you just, you know, take all the, the, the women rapers and the child murderers and, and we'll, we'll just execute those. Problem is, they didn't have enough embellished. They, they couldn't come up with uh, enough to justify, uh, you know, they, they couldn't come up with enough accusations of those kinds of crimes. That would have satisfied the good people of Minnesota. So Lincoln just whittled the number down to 39. I say 39. They, they executed 38. But he had, his original execution order was for 39. Out of 300. Now the, uh, the rest of that 300, they all died in prison. Don't, you know, don't for a second think, oh boy, weren't they lucky. No, they weren't lucky. In fact, by some arguments, the 38 that were executed, they were the lucky ones. Because they died with honor. Look, the idea of dying sucks. The idea of being killed or executed sucks even more. But they chanted. They, they sung a song as the noose was put around their neck. The rest, of the, the rest of the 300, they had to die a terrible ex, you know, extended death in a prison that nobody got to witness, that nobody got to remember. I mean, it's hard. I'm, I've got a, you know, I've got a, a Lincoln shirt that, that Jake designed that's got Lincoln with a noose. And on the back, it's got the 38 Dakota. And then there's, and there's two more that were, the, when we say 38 plus two, we have two more that were hung, you know, a couple of years later. But we don't have the names of the other 300 or the, or the rest of the 300. So those 38 at least died with a little bit of distinction. Again, at the hands of Abraham Lincoln in Minnesota. So when the straw that breaks the camel's back is in, uh, is in Minnesota, Minneapolis, I mean, again, to, re- to recount history, for those who are, who are big AIM fans, the reason AIM even exists is because of the abuse that Native people were experiencing in Minneapolis and St. Paul. That's why AIM came, to, came into existence. They created a movement that would protect and and assist and provide services to native people who were being persecuted by the white people in Minneapolis uh, and by the by the police. Ames' original intent was to, to provide was, was essentially to, to provide services to urbanized native people. It wasn't until much later that AIM moved on to native territories and started advocating more along the lines of sovereignty and that kind of stuff. And this isn't a criticism. This is just kind of the history. I mean, it, you start someplace. Look, the, 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 the so-called warrior society movement 
started out with, with a bunch of young men who wanted to do singing society. And then, you know, and, and it grows out. So, I mean, it all starts someplace. So AIM gets its start recognizing how persecuted Native people were in the cities. And they were forced into the cities, by the way. I mean, when, you, when people look at Native population, they say, well, uh, what's the Native population um, off territory? By some estimates, and I don't even know how accurate this is, but by some estimates, census numbers, 70% of the Native population lives off, off territory. I don't think it's that high, but that's what I say. And, they, and part of it is, let's face it, the census, which, again, another one of those you know, U.S. things that I don't support, anybody can just say, well, I'm a Native American. You know, these, these self-identified people, the ones who answer the mascot questions and that kind of stuff, yeah, are they really Native people? I mean, does everybody who lists themselves on a, on a U.S. census as Native, as Native Americans, are they really Native people? Do they have connections? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. But by some estimates, again, census estimates, as many as 70% of the Native population lives off, te- off territory. And there was a plan. There was, there was a, an effort during the Nixon administration. They called it the, the relocation program. And this was a policy to, to, it wasn't just the idea of relocating Native people from a, a reservation into a city. It was to eliminate our reservations. And in fact, there were, you know, there were congressmen and senators, senator after senator, congressman after congressman said, well, the biggest mistake we ever made was, uh, was allowing the Native people to, to carve out some existence on reservations. We should have forced assimilated. So that's what this, this relocation thing was about, forced assimilation. Now, here's the thing, and I've talked about this on, on a previous show when I talked about assimilation as genocide. The idea of becoming assimilated doesn't mean that you get to follow the American dream. It means that you get to, you get to occupy the space at the bottom of their social structure. The, the, the very bottom. And, and I say the very bottom because, again, I know people are going to say, well, black people have it worse. I don't know that that's true, and I'm not trying to, you know, fight a fight a battle over over the over the over the bottom spot on the list. But I know the the level of poverty and unemployment on Native territories for Native people is it's worse than than for Black people. We, in fact, we lead every list you don't want to lead: suicide, substance abuse, poverty, unemployment, um, uh, life expectancy. Teen pregnancy, dropout, high school dropout, your depression, you know, many of these underlying conditions like diabetes. We, we lead in all those, those categories. And how is it? How is it possible a people who have lived on this continent, lived on Turtle Island for 130,000 years, how is it that we end up occupying the worst spaces on any of these lists? Well, I'll tell you how. Racism. Racism and policy, racist policy. Policies administered by the federal government and administered by the states. And, and, and there's no, this isn't even a debate. So, but I come back to the question. So what do we learn from this? We know that just making money and finding niches within their systems of capitalism isn't going to get it done. Gaming's still vulnerable. What do they say? Oh, yeah, gaming and alcohol are recession-proof. Bullshit. They're not only not recession-proof, they certainly aren't pandemic-proof. So 
We know we can't count on, on it. And, and, and I don't mean just because we're going to fight the states or fight the federal government. There's that too. But there's other, other vulnerabilities. I mean, look, you know, people become impoverished. If the economy collapses, the only people coming into the casinos are going to be the ones that come in to loot it. That's the only ones that are going to be coming in. So we better rethink what that, what that means. So I mean, that, and that's that's why I'm saying we, we better understand where we where we fit with with police, where we fit with the non-native public. Uh, you know, look, I said that we are the least significant population in the United States. There are some people, and including some native people, who think our position as mascots is the only thing that makes us relevant. That if, you, that if you eliminate, as I'm wearing my Caucasian shirt, by the way, and my, I am not a mascot button on my microphone. <laughs> Look, there, I mean, and we, we hear this argument all the time. I mean, in fact, there are organizations that, that advocate, well, I think we're, we're, we're trying to guard, we're, we call ourselves our, the guardians, because we want Native people to remain relevant to white people as their mascots. Like, that's what's important to us. I mean, if the only relevance I have is that somebody mocks me on a fo- at a football game, I can do without that. I, you know, look, I'd rather I'd rather be obscure and and be out of sight and out of mind. Because if that's what you you think our purpose is, we have to assert our distinction. And and, and it's why I you know I get so frustrated with you know assimilation and you know and 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 the fact that assimilation is genocide. And and when I say assimilation, I'm not just attacking people who adopt you know uh, religious religious beliefs, but again, you know, as as one of the, the commenters here said, even as we're fighting the authorities, Native people still enlist at a higher rate than than any other group. I'm not saying our total numbers, but as a percentage of our population, the fact that we enlist in the, in the U.S. military so they can oppress other people or worse yet can be called in as the president has been threatening to use the military to suppress people i mean if there was ever a reason not to join the military donald trump is it i mean if there was ever a reason and there's many if if there were no other reason there's that one we i mean the idea that that we want to Engage and and to, to be a part of that system. We want to run for their offices. We want to run for president, like Mark Charles, or or run for Congress, or or, or whatever else. Whatever happened to our own leadership leading us and 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 stepping up for us and and giving us some leadership by example? If the only example you're saying is, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be become an American. I'm gonna I'm going to run a losing attempt at being the president of the United States. Yeah, well, that teaches me a lot. Yeah, you're, that's a big example. Or I'm going to join the military so I can spend the rest of my days on native territory wearing a, my Vietnam hat or my Korea hat or my Marine hat or whatever else. That becomes more of your identity than, than, being, than being native. So I'm hoping that through all of this, there are some lessons learned. I'm hoping we come out of this and that's my ask here. My, I'm not telling, what, telling you what you should learn. I'm asking. I'm asking you, what's your takeaway? What's your takeaway in death by cop? What's your takeaway with missing and murdered indigenous women? 
What's your takeaway from COVID-19? When you see what the world is experiencing, that what everybody's experiencing now, today, with these two competing calamities, riots in the street against uh, police violence and battling against you know a global pandemic and or, sur- or surviving it anyway, what should we take away from it? That's my ask. Thank you for listening. And uh, hey, I, real quick, shout out to my sponsors. I want to thank Ross and Holly John and the RJE Family of Businesses. I want to thank um, uh, Grenver Enterprises and Native Wholesale Supply and Eric White and ERW Enterprises. Thanks for supporting the show. And thank you for listening, watching, and sharing. Nyawe. 